0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Hope your weekend is uh, going well. This week uh, marks the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so there are all sorts of commemorations. And one thing that stood out to me was just the fawning tributes to Zelensky. If you read all the major U.S. establishment outlets, they all had these long, especially uh, I'm thinking of The New York Times and Washington Post, but others as well, had these long, fawning profiles of Zelensky of how uh, a year of war has hardened him and turned him from a, a naive rookie president who uh, foolishly believed he can make peace with Russia to now seeing the reality that there's no peace with Russia allowed. And the best expression of this came from an aide to Zelensky speaking to the New York Times, who said that Zelensky is now more at peace with himself and this is what the aide said about why Zelensky's at peace with himself. The aide said, he has a clear understanding what Ukraine should do. There is no ambiguity. There is no peace with Russia and Ukraine must arm itself to the teeth. So this is an aid to, to Zelensky bragging about how, you know, whereas Zelensky came into office thinking he can make peace and end the war in the Donbass now. He is, there's no ambiguity, there's no peace with Russia, and Ukraine must arm itself to the teeth. So basically, Ukraine has to be in perpetual conflict with its neighbor, a neighbor with which it shares uh, not only a border, but huge historical and cultural ties and familial ties. Um, and it must arm itself to the teeth, it should turn itself basically into a NATO arms depot. And this is like the dream of Washington neoconservatives for Ukraine for a long time. And, uh, even the elected, the president who was elected on the mandate to make peace, because that's what Zelensky ran on to end the war in the Donbass. Uh, even now he's completely marching in lockstep with the agenda of neoconservatives in Washington. And, um, what I go through my latest article, which I just, I just posted on Substack is how basically Zelensky got here, I think not because of uh, a natural evolution because, you know, because of a change in his thinking due to circumstances. I think because he was bullied, uh, the Ukraine far right blocked all of his efforts to make peace with the rebels in the Donbass and the U.S. sided with the Ukraine's far right. And interestingly enough, in these new profiles of Zelensky on the one year of the war, there's more evidence of that. There's an anecdote in which William Taylor, who was the top U.S. envoy to Ukraine back in 2019, uh, meets with Zelensky, and Zelensky's talking to him about how he wants to pursue this German-backed effort to implement the Minsk Accords, which was the agreement reached in 2015 to end the Donbass War. And Taylor recalls telling, to, telling Zelensky, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so that, that's the attitude of the U.S. envoy of Ukraine. Trying to make peace is a terrible idea. And Taylor, you might remember him, because he became one of the heroes of Trump's first impeachment When Trump was impeached for pausing weapons shipments to Ukraine. Taylor was one of the star witnesses who came before Congress and assured us that Trump doing this was a grave threat to our national security. So the guy who thought peace was a terrible idea was naturally the hero of an impeachment process that was premised on this idea that, as Adam Schiff put it, we need to fight Russia over there. We need to use Ukraine to fight Russia over there. So Accordingly, for all these people who hate peace and want to use Ukraine for a proxy war against Russia, Zelensky is understandably a hero because he was been bullied into abandoning the mandate that he was elected on. And um, that to me is where we're at on the first anniversary of this war. And, um, you know, another chilling illustration of how dangerous this is, came this week when uh, Vladimir Putin announced that Russia was limiting compliance with Start, the last remaining nuclear treaty that limits the nuclear arsenals of the U.S. and Russia. And um, now he didn't pull out of the treaty, as some reports put it, he just limited compliance with it. Russia's still respecting the core tenets of it, which is they're not going to develop new warheads, so they're not gonna go over the cap. And they're still gonna alert the U.S. of tests But they are going to block inspections by U.S. inspectors. And this decision by Putin does make renewal all the more difficult because this treaty is supposed to expire in, in, let's see here, in three years from now. Um, and if, uh, there's no negotiations, which there aren't right now, then it can't be renewed. And what are the odds that there's going to be negotiations as the U.S. and Russia are locked in this? you know, catastrophic proxy war. So a decision like this just makes a renewal even less likely. So that just underscores on top of the dangers to Ukraine, to Russia, the rest of the world. Then there's the nuclear aspect to this too, which again, was one of the issues that could have been addressed before Russia invaded had the U.S. and NATO chosen to take Russia's proposal seriously because we're called in, in just December 2021. Russia put out some draft treaties to the U.S. and NATO. And, you know, I, I don't think... The U.S. NATO should have just blanketly accepted all of Russia's proposals, but they could have at least seriously discussed them, and they refused to do that. And that's a major reason why I think we're in the catastrophe that we're in today. So perhaps all this will galvanize a movement like we saw in the 1980s when there was millions of people marching against nuclear weapons, like in Central Park in 1982. Imagine that today. Um, Just last week, an anti-war rally in Washington, D.C. only got a few thousand people. And a lot of progressives who consider themselves anti-war spent their time attacking the rally. So it's very difficult right now to organize any kind of movement for peace when there's so much division. And um, that's just how it is. Okay, that is my rant. Let's take some calls. Uh, Brent, you are first.
1: Hi, Aaron. Nice speaking with you yesterday. Oh, hi. Yes. Hello. At the J.J. rally. Yes. Uh, not rally. No, um,
2: No. Yes. Yes. So I'll
1: talk more about that on another call. And um, so I'm going to address your question. So um, I go on different calls. People give me hate because apparently you 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 were fed up with me and you own me, quote unquote, own me because I talk about the same topic. And my response to that is, well, Russia, Ukraine war is an important topic. And it's it's on in the news weekly. And and you're talking about it right now. So um, to address this point about uh, pro. Hey
0: Brent, Brent, Brent just, uh, one quick thing. I, I, I mean, I, I can't control what other people say, but I'm not fed up with anybody, including you. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know. I'm not. I'm no I'm not, and i am not i am not. And I don't own people uh, on here. I just I think last week I tried to express that I have answered the same question from you many weeks in a row. I, th- I think that's what I said. But not- do, I, do I ask that
1: question every week? I don't think so. But anyway, um, okay. my uh, in response to him being from pro-peace to uh, no-peace, I do feel like he should be pro-peace, but I feel like the, the issue is the United States involvement. Um, I feel like the United States should back off completely. That's not realistic, but they should back off completely. Like if the United States was not involved at all, I do feel Ukraine does have the right to fight back because it's being invaded by a an aggressor country russia and the issue does come back uh, did russia have the right to invade And i don't think so so i feel like ukraine does have the right to fight back and um if, if ukraine chooses to fight to the last ukrainian without the u.s involvement i do feel it should have that right to do that and make that determination based off, on being a a sovereign country but I do take issue with this issue, with uh, fighting, continuing to fight versus peace, because the United States is involved. And I feel like um, there sh- okay, the money should there. be.
0: Yeah, I got it. Um, of course, Ukraine has the right to fight back. Um, of course, they do. If you're invaded, you have every right to fight back. The question is is that prudent? Is that the best thing for your people? No. And, and no. Hold, on, hold on. And are there reasonable diplomatic alternatives? So sometimes, yeah, you have no choice but to fight. You know, um, like we had no choice but to fight the Nazis in the Second World War. Uh, William Wallace, like Braveheart, one of my favorite movies. No, cho- you know, uh, no choice but to fight, right? But in the case of Russia and Ukraine, where are the alternatives? And as I talked about in my rant, yes, uh, there was on the issue of the placement of NATO and nuclear weapons. You had Russia putting out. These detailed draft treaties in December 2021 to try to address their issues. Now, neo-imperialists don't put out draft treaties uh, with extensive proposals uh, to resolve their issues. Neo-imperialists just invade and impose their terms by force uh, or by sanctions. Russia, by contrast, put out these long draft treaties that, again, I said earlier, I'm not saying NATO and U.S. should have accepted every single term and just signed on the dotted line, but they could have at least discussed it, but they didn't. They refused to even discuss it. Meanwhile, you had a situation in the Donbass where you have a war going on for eight years. So this war didn't begin when Russia invaded. It actually began in 2014 after a U.S.-back coup. There's a war going on. Thousands of people die. People in the Donbass are being shelled. they appealed for Russian help a long time ago. Russia refused, uh, except for providing some limited support, like arming the rebels, but not bringing in uh, nearly the force that would be needed to end that war. Uh, And Russia opted to support the Minsk peace process, which Ukraine refused to implement. So Russia was put in a very, very tough position. And the people of the Donbass also have the right to live and to be protected. And their leadership felt as if their only option was to ask Russia to come and help them. That's what they did. And I wish Russia personally had found a different way. I wish Russia had gone and asked for peacekeepers, for example, or done something. Because I think, you know, even if I think you're provoked, uh, you still are responsible for your own actions and you have to prove that you've exhausted all other alternatives before you use force. And I don't think Russia proved that. But again, um, the people of of the Donbass have the right to live too. And it's not just a question of saying that, you know, Russia uh, came in to uh, colonize Ukraine. No, like Russia came in because they didn't see any, any other alternative to helping the people of the Donbass. And meanwhile, also, NATO was uh, NATO was encroaching uh, into Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is becoming further integrated into NATO's security architecture, and NATO and the U.S. refusing to even discuss with Russia its core concerns about the placement of weapons and NATO troops. So Russia was in a tough position. And uh, I think the, just characterizing this as uh, Ukraine has the right to fight back, yes, they have the right, but on the ground, were there alternatives to this? And yes, there were.
1: Yes, absolutely there were, but... I feel like the United States should not be even involved in this war at all. Um, that should be between Russia and Ukraine, and the United States needs to back off because there's a bunch of homeless people here in America. And well, we agree the- on that. We agree
0: on that. Thank you, Brent, for the call. Steve. Hi, Aaron. Hi
3: there. Hi. So um, three real quick things. Um, the first thing is, You're about 99% there on uh, why Russia actually had to start this war. But you're still saying they could have done something else. Um, I I don't think they could have done anything else. Uh, The first night, and and, uh, Putin actually said this, the first seven targets they bombed were the seven bases that NATO was constructing to NATO standards in Ukraine. In other words, uh, they, they yes, it was preemptive, but you you don't build bases in a country if you're then not going to use those bases. So, it, you know, they saw the writing on the wall and they attacked. But I'm glad you make the point about uh, more than 5,000 civilians in the city of Donetsk who were shelled and are still to this day being shelled. And no one talks about it. So, uh, Two other really quick things. Uh, one is uh, I don't know if you heard today. I'm on. I get on the Telegram channels and all the all the reports from all over the world because you can't you can't get anything from the American media. I know you and Katie like to watch it, but you can't really get any facts from them. Um, apparently, uh, there was a, a cruise missile. I mean, a drone attack on the airbase in Belarus. Uh, which houses the Russian uh, MiG-31s. And uh, th- so that's an act of war against Belarus. And it, it was done while uh, yevdoshenko I can't say his name correctly, w- is in Beijing meeting with Xi Jinping. So uh, they're tr- it, it's an escalation you know, by the West. So they're trying to goad uh, Belarus into getting into the war too. They just know have no off switch. Uh, the West just has no off switch. But I, I'm starting to feel like they're bullies, and if their nose gets bloodied enough, they're going to back off. The third point I would make is I helped organize the 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 march, is our little rally we had in San Francisco. It wasn't nearly as big as the one in Washington, but we had a nice we had like maybe 150 people, and we had everyone. We had people from libertarians. To the most Marxist communist you've ever met in your life. We had everyone. And uh, it was a really good group. They're having demonstrations, and you mentioned it, Aaron, they're having demonstrations in France and Germany now, big ones. They're having really big ones. And to, so to me, there's a little bit of hope. But um, the last point I'll make in on gun is uh, I helped organize with Code Pink here, the, the thing in San Francisco. Um, Medea Benjamin, uh, I think is a hero of the peace movement. I think bad things happened. Um, I think mistakes were made, but I think, you know, I, I love Jimmy Dore. I love Max. Um, I, I, I don't know. Could you maybe be a, and I'm going to suggest this to Medea, could you maybe help iron things out or I don't know where things stand, but I hate it when people who are righteous and I love and who fight for justice fight with each other. I can't stand it. I can't stand seeing it. There's not enough of us. So, and I know your dad is, (laughs) is great at, at people overcoming their issues and stuff. Um, so I guess I'm kind of in a way asking you, what do you think? Can, can, can some rifts be healed and we can move forward together?
0: Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I there's, um, it's just a reality that there's a lot of infighting and division in this corner of the left. And I don't like it either. I, I share your sentiment. I just don't know really what can be done. Um,
3: Yeah, I know the kind of person you are. Yeah. I I know you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, you know, there were look, it's just there are people who felt that uh, it wasn't a good thing to join forces with libertarians because of all their reactionary views on certain domestic uh, social issues. And but
3: but Aaron, but Aaron in San Francisco, Code Pink, they did. Yeah, no, sure, you no, see listen, what I'm saying? So I, it was. Yeah, it, it's not as big and broad of a thing, I no, think, sure, as it's sure, being painted sure. yeah,
4: as. Yeah,
0: yeah. Listen, you know, the yeah. problem for me is, I just—it's not my focus. I, it, it sucks for yeah. me to are people yeah. who I all like and I, I respect and I, yeah. I think are really important. But my focus is is, is, is doing journalism that I that I think is I, that I hope is uh, useful and meaningful. Uh, okay. And I,
3: thank you, thank you, Aaron. Thank it you. is extremely useful and extremely. Oh, thank you. Thank
0: you. Okay. Thanks, Steve.
4: Okay. Uh, Zach. Hey, Aaron, uh, just a couple questions or I, I try to make it as quick and we'll see, you know, uh, but first question, a lot of folks I talk to, I think I've told you about this, the people, you know, kind of spouting left talking points that I have to chat with. It's heartbreaking, but one of the things they always say, Putin has a history of doing this. What do you,
0: all right. So <laughs> what is that history? They're going to point to Chechnya, right? That was a brutal, war uh, inside Russia's borders, um, where there was an insurgency. And by the way, that insurgency, it was fueled, not fully, but in part by the U.S. Like the U.S. was happy to see Russia bleed itself in this horrible war. And and yeah, Russia used brutal tactics to put it down. Um, but that was an internal uh, war. And then in terms of invading foreign countries, there's Georgia in 2008, Everybody knows now that Georgia started that war, and they did that because they were encouraged by Dick Cheney, who, said, who suggested to Georgia that if you attack South Ossetia, which is a separatist, which is a separatist region of Georgia uh, that is in alliance with Russia, uh, Cheney suggested to Shakisvili, the <clears throat> head of Georgia, that if you attack South Ossetia, we'll have your back. And of course, the U.S. didn't. <laughs> Mm. and uh because they didn't want to have uh world war three with russia over the fate of south so mm. so yeah so george so that's when so uh russia went in after georgia attacked first that's 2008 and then mm. there is ukraine right uh and in 2014 a war breaks out and russia does back the rebels and Russia even sends in troops and they did lie about it. They did you know, f- claim that there weren't Russian forces going into Ukraine, but that's not true. They, they sent forces into Donbass and into Crimea, the, the little green men, as they were called. But again, how did that start? It started with a U.S.-backed coup. Uh, the U.S. Uh, <laughs> supported far-right fascists who led the overthrow of the elected government. And then Victoria Newland was caught on tape plotting who the next leader would be. Um, and then the new coup government basically declared war on Ukraine's ethnic Russian population. Uh, one of the first things the new government tried to do is ban the Russian language in, in official uh, uh, public spaces um, and encourage assaults on people who were opposing the coup, including in Odessa in May 2014, when dozens of people were burned alive. So, yeah, at that point, Russia backed the rebels, but again, Russia did not fully invade. Russia, Putin was under pressure from his own constituency uh, in the national security state of Russia back in 2014 to invade. But he preferred to try to go through this immense peace process where uh, the issue would be solved by giving the rebels limited autonomy. And we know now from multiple voices that uh, Ukraine never took that seriously. Ukraine's far right blocked all efforts to implement the Minsk Accords. And, you know, people like Angela Merkel, who was supposed to be brokering all this in good faith, she recently said that Minsk was never intended to bring peace. It was intended to give Ukraine time to p- prepare for war. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have Syria. Like well, Russia went into Syria. Well, why did Russia go into Syria? John Kerry said it best. He said Russia came in because we, the U.S., were watching as ISIS was growing and threatening to take Damascus. And Kerry explained that the U.S. was watching because they were hoping that ISIS could be used as leverage to force Assad to negotiate with the U.S. and let in a leader that the U.S. would approve of. Uh, And Russia came in, Kerry says, because they didn't want an ISIS government. So that is Putin's history of intervention.
4: Um, So Georgia, you said, if I got you uh, said correctly, that Georgia actually was a reactive.
0: Uh, Georgia was, again, that war happened because Georgia attacked the separatists in South Ossetia first. Um, I will link to, I will find the article. There's some article, there was a report done on this by some, you know, NATO Security Commission in Europe. Um, and I will try to find you the article right now uh, and I'll put it in the chat. Let's see here. I think it was in Reuters a few years ago. Here we go. Uh, here's the headline Georgia started war with Russia, EU backed report. <laughs> An independent report, this is from Reuters, this is from 20, 2009. An independent report blamed Georgia on Wednesday for starting last year's five-day war with Russia, uh, but said Russia's military response went beyond reasonable limits and violated international law. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an EU-backed report saying that Georgia started that war, and they're faulting Russia for its response, but not for starting Mm -hmm. it. And I will hear. Let me put that link in the chat right now. Um, And and then you can find – if you want to read that report, uh, uh, it's pretty – if you can find it, it's written. It's written. It's the European Union report. So you know, like that's a. It's always helpful when, you know, um, sources go against their own interests. So in the case of the EU, yeah. that's aligned with NATO. You think that they would be pro-U.S. here, but he, but this report found that Georgia started it. And I think I think the part that this probably leaves out is the role of Dick Cheney and all this. But you can find that in uh, Andrew Coburn. He's written about this, like Google Andrew Coburn in Georgia and Cheney 2008, and you'll find the U.S. role in
4: helping to provoke that war interesting and and Aaron I don't want to take up too much time but just one more question just about trying to push back or I mean if I can with like these folks that I'm chatting with you know that have that are you know claimed to be liberals right um but they'll a lot of them will also say countries now want to join the EU they want to join NATO because of the threat that Russia poses to their own you know their own security and their own democracies and like I just remember hearing some reporting that you were doing <clears throat> about like within inside Ukraine or in eastern Ukraine where there's like you know protests that are you know showing no nato's you know they don't want to join NATO. So like, what's, you know, what's the situation? There are all these countries in Eastern Europe, just like, screw Russia. I want it. I really want to be part of EU and I really want to be part of NATO.
0: Well, first of all, if you look at polls in Ukraine, there's always <clears throat> been splits uh, about the issue of joining the EU and joining NATO. Uh, I've written about this. I write more about this in my forthcoming book on the topic, but the country has always been split. And this narrative just simply ignores the deep divisions that exist. And we only acknowledge the existence of Ukrainians who share our agenda. And the answer in a country that's deeply divided is to respect that division and just keep it neutral rather than forcing it into one camp or another. So don't force it into the Russia camp. Don't force it into the NATO camp. Just uh, mm-hmm. respect its divisions, keep it neutral. And polls have always shown that. And, um, and regardless, look, like NATO is a military alliance. Uh, just ask Libya. Libya wasn't attacking Europe when Libya was destroyed by NATO. So the idea that NATO is just this you know, defensive alliance is a fiction. It's used to destroy countries. Uh, just ask Libya, same thing with Serbia, right? Um, and so there's no, like, no one has an inherent right to join a, a offensive military alliance, especially if it's on the border of a nuclear-armed country, which has a deep historical tie to Ukraine. There are millions of people inside Ukraine who identify with Russia, and by trying to force it into a hostile military alliance that is, you know, founded on confronting Russia, mm-hmm. um, you're just asking for disaster. Yeah. So even if, you know, Zelensky says, I want to join NATO, I, again, it's not like a, it's not a, um, a as Katrina Van huvel uh, says, it's not a coffee club. It's not like a, there's like a friendly meeting of people sipping tea and <laughs> exchanging, you know, like having like a book club. It's a it's an it's a offensive military alliance. And no one has a right to join an offensive military alliance. Uh, people have the right to live in peace. And Russia has the right to live in peace and security too. And um, the principle of international relations should be, I think, uh, no security at the expense of someone else's. And so why would you want to Um, bring Ukraine into NATO when, again, it's historically been split over that anyway and even if it wasn't so split, just like, it's, the consequences are are so disastrous. So that's what I'd say. And just as, you know, look, we had a missile crisis in Cuba when the US, when the Soviet Union placed uh, missiles there, right? It's a similar thing now. The the US already has missiles that can hit Russia in Poland and Romania or missile sites, I should say,
5: that can
4: hit
0: Russia and Poland and Romania. So, um, Russia has drawn a red line at
4: Ukraine. Yep. Um, thanks Aaron. Uh, just real quick and I'll jump off, but just, you know, folks saying Democrat, it, the 2014 coup was a democratic, uh, help, democratically run protest. Like, is there, you know, information that I can like do some reading on that? I know you probably wrote about it in your book or have some stuff on Substack, but like just to, you know, folks that say, oh, it was a democratic protest in 2014, not
0: a coup. Okay. Well, look, I mean, um, I've written about this extensively on, on my sub stack.
4: Um, okay. Perfect.
0: There's an article that I wrote there right after the, uh, like right after Russia's invasion, it was called something about, um, uh, to here, what was it called? Uh, it's called, I'll post a link to it. It, it talks yeah. about the 2014 coup. It's, it's called by using Ukraine to fight Russia, the U S provoked Putin's war. And, um, You know, look, in terms of the character of the 2014 coup, um, it was, again, initially the protests on the Maidan were pro-democracy, anti-corruption. Tens of thousands of people, um, you know, just wanted uh, Yanukovych to live up on his campaign promise to join the EU. What they didn't realize was that the EU was demanding he accept crippling austerity. That's what, you know, and and that's what we're not told about all that time. But anyway... Mm -hmm. But by the end of it, it was dominated by far-right fascists. And that's why. Just, just to give you an example. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, what is it? I'm trying to find a quote for you. Um, uh, here we go. This is Foreign Policy Magazine, okay? This is not party. <laughs> okay? And this is what Foreign Policy Magazine, these are two Western scholars with Western think tanks. This is what they said uh, back in 2014. They said this quote: "The uncomfortable truth is that a sizable portion of Kiev's current government and the protesters who brought it to power are indeed fascists."
6: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: and that's obvious because the people who were the muscle of the Maidan, like right sector and tide groups, these are people who are, you know, they were. These are open. These are people. These are, these are people very open about being fascists and about how, mm-hmm. how we need to like. And the Jewish influence over Ukraine, and drive out the, you know, uh, like w- like whatever the, like like the Nazi term is for like like lower status humans, like
3: mm-hmm.
7: you, you
0: mm-hmm. know, um, that's who they were. It's obvious. That's who John McCain and Chris Murphy and Victoria Nuland were parading around with, and it's impossible to deny it. And that's why foreign policy had to admit it.
4: Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Uh, Go ahead, Sahand.
8: Yes. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for Hi there. doing this. Yes. Um, Yeah, one of the things along the um, peace talks and resolutions that uh, has become pretty obvious recently is um, China's involvement has becoming more and more, I guess, um, is being put into the news lately and not in a good way. You know, like today, NPR was basically calling them, uh, calling them out to, you know, that they're provoking that they're uh, supplying weapons and they're, you know, they're being threatened by the U S but the main thing that they're not really talking about is that just the, just two days ago, China um, put a 12 piece um, plan uh, proposal out there. And they're to me, as uh, just a citizen, just reading the news, observing, you know, uh, this, the, the the events here, it sounded very reasonable here. And what I guess um, stood out to me, I don't know. You could probably read through that. It's it a very uh, reasonable set of bullet points, uh, demands that, that China wanted to propose uh, for for all of this. But uh, I found it very interesting that the U.S. outright came and completely uh, um, stopped that and said, no, you know, they're not because just because China is not condemning Russia as strongly as we want them to, we don't take him seriously.
7: So I think this is another,
8: I guess, data point in that uh, interests in peace talks and peace aren't really that serious here. It's all about being aggressive towards Russia. It's all about going to, to this anti-Russian movement here. And if you're not buying into that movement here, you're not really serious about peace from the U S perspective. So.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, what I found so funny, what I found so funny is that um, all of a sudden last, starting last week, we started getting these claims from the U.S. that Russia, like warning China against arming Russia. China's going to arm Russia, even though China hasn't done that so far. All of a sudden, the U.S. is saying China's going to arm Russia. And what does this warning coincide with? It coincides with China putting out a peace proposal. <laughs> right. So you know, I don't know. You know, Maybe the US has gotten some amazing secret intelligence that China really is about to arm Russia, even though I don't think Russia really needs Chinese weapons and um and I don't think China really has an interest in doing that. China I think is, you know, tried I, I definitely think China gave its blessing to Russia to invade. I don't think Russia mm-hmm. could have done it without China's blessing But I don't think China wants to be involved militarily. So right as China's putting out a peace proposal All of a sudden, the U.S. accuses it of considering arming Russia. And I think they did that not based on – I'm just guessing – not based on any real intelligence because they wanted to undermine China's peace effort because they don't want peace. And I I covered this this week on the Jimmy Dore show. I did a segment about it. I'll post a link to it in the chat. And I think we covered it on Useful Idiots too. But yeah. um,
8: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just kind of – Concerns me yeah. that China, such a big country with such an influence. I mean, a lot of our our economy depends on that country, and I think roping them into this as a uh, as a as an evil doer here, it's kind of it's unwise all around. That politically and financially, is it's just not going to work out really well for us.
0: <laughs> yep. 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 Okay. Thank you for the call. All right, Tim.
6: Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I'm on the uh the website's calling because uh, the app isn't working for me right now. Uh I just wanted to shift it to I like I didn't know uh Gates was the one proposing a uh you know, we need to pull out of Syria thing. And I got to tell you, I wasn't really surprised by the fact that uh stroll had switched the narrative from, yeah, we're just taking their oil to, well, what about the Kurds? And I I want to ask you this is the part that that gets me because there are people on the left who will fall for that that talking point of, oh, well, if we pull out, then we abandon the Kurds. And even if you try to explain to them, yeah, but we're not there because we care about them. We're using them as a as a buffer to make sure that the rest of the Syrian people suffer so without, you know, without having access to oil or wheat fields. Exactly. So just to explain this.
0: I did a segment this week on the Jimmy Dore Show because I was guest hosting about how you know, Congressman Matt Gates, a Republican, has put out a measure calling for an immediate U.S. withdrawal from Syria. And I pointed out that the rationale, the official rationale for why the U.S. is a Syria, <coughs> has changed. So Dana Stroul, who's a top U.S. official, a few years ago explained that the reason we're occupying Syria is because... We get to own one third of Syria, which happens to be the region with its uh, oil and wheat. And that gives us big leverage over shaping Syria's future. That was her argument. And then a few years later, I think she realized that it's probably not so wise to admit that out loud. So she went before Congress and I played the clip where she said, actually, we're in Syria to help defeat ISIS and to help the Kurds. And, um, but that's undermined by her own admissions that we're there to steal the oil and the wheat and by Trump as well. Trump also said we're there to take the oil. So that's the real reason why the U.S. is there. And now Matt Gaetz is challenging that by calling for a withdrawal. And yeah, if the U.S. cared about the Kurds, which it never has, it always sells them out whenever it needs to. It would allow them to make it, basically make a deal with the Syrian government and um, uh, and leave uh, because the U.S. is always selling out the Kurds. And I'm sure they will again when it's when it's the time to. And they already have actually in Syria when they let Turkey invade parts of Syria a few years ago. That was Trump. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see the rationale change from we're openly acknowledging that we're there to steal the oil to, oh, no, we, we need to be there to fight ISIS. Even though, as I've shown, I've written about this and I talked about this in that segment, which I'll, po- I'll post a link to, the U.S. is not fighting ISIS at all. It's barely fighting ISIS. The people fighting ISIS in Syria are the Syrian government and their allies.
6: Yeah, so I was going to say um... – in that regard, how do you how do we counter that narrative? Because, you know, the the uh, by the way, I've been meaning to ask you, I haven't had a chance to uh, listen to the full interview with uh, with Professor Landis. Did you bring up the conversation as to where where it goes? Because I know Landis early on had said, if this if you want this to end uh, peacefully, the the Kurds and realis- uh, realistically, or I should be more specific, the YPG groups are going to have to meet with the Syrian government and come to an understanding. But of course, we won't let them do that. And, uh, you know, now I don't think that that notion of Turkey getting involved after this earthquake is going to be a realistic uh, possibility. But I mean, we're already seeing a shift of like Arab leaders from other countries already meeting with Syria because I think they've just acknowledged like, yeah, this 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 is more or less over. So how do we counter this narrative when you try to explain to people who, you know, they might be coming from a genuine uh, good point of view? That, no, we don't care about them at all because we're just like if you're saying we care, then you have to be willing to accept the fact that you're OK with a a military occupation of Syria and be stealing another country's natural resource.
0: Exactly. Uh, I think you just counted it very well. I-, I
6: would say exactly what you just said. Yeah. Well, so, easier you. said than done. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for the call, Sam. <laughs> Take care. OK lucius and then everybody to everybody in the queue i'm gonna to have to leave earlier than normal today I don't, uh, so if anyone does not have a pressing need to speak i would ask you to drop out of the queue so that those who really want to say something have a
2: chance to okay go ahead oh my god you just set me up as like <laughs> the biggest ass <laughs> in the situation i i am basically straight trolling here I am just so curious. I've been wondering this forever. Mate with the accent over the E. What's the deal? How do you pronounce it? How does your brother pronounce it? And how does your dad pronounce it? And why? Please, like, spill the beans, Aaron.
0: <laughs> okay, well, uh, I, mean, I say mate, uh, but uh, Americans usually say mate for whatever reason. And I don't, I don't care uh, how it's pronounced because... I don't know. Like, I don't own the name. Um, but I, I say Mate. I, I'm pretty sure my family members say it the same way. And originally, the name back in Hungary was Melter. Uh, but the Nazis <laughs> were about to debate. And so my grandparents changed it to, to Mate because that was a common Hungarian name.
2: Um, really? So that's,
0: that's, that's the story.
2: Okay, yeah. Just because, uh, you know, Mate in the sense of the herb and the tea is a thing I've really enjoyed. So there's Uh a South American connotation here that I've always wondered if there's like a connection, but that actually totally clears it up. Thank you. Okay. So I will let uh, other callers get to it. All right. Okay. Thanks for the call. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: All right. Gator.
2: Hey, Aaron. Um,
9: I just wanted to congratulate you guys for, um, the latest Grey Zone um, live stream segment. You basically summed up in an hour and three quarters what I've been thinking about for like the last maybe two weeks or so with Ohio through to Ukraine and beyond. I thought that was a really, really, really engaging piece. So I wanted to just congratulate you on that. And also, it. um with regards to Max's um, speech at Rage Against the War Machine, I think he did a really good job. And getting straight to the heart of things about and, and pointing out pointing people at the neocons and identifying a clear enemy i think that was a really worthwhile speech that he made in that respect okay yeah cool well thank you i agree one, one other thing i'd like to just switch to bring to your attention and that of the audience is right at the beginning of the chat and i'll put them in again are links by a journalist on Substack called deborah armstrong who has basically got a three-part series that covers human trafficking and organ trading um harvesting effectively in not just ukraine but other areas other areas of the world including that that similar close regions and bordering regions with russia and i really think it's worth your time to look at that um because um i think more people should be aware of it um because it does feed a lot of what's going on in ukraine and she doesn't go she doesn't say hey this is the ukrainian army doing something terrible she says it's a load of other agents and they're literally whipping the um <clears throat> organs out of anyone they can get their hands on the the ukrainians have actually changed the law to remove the need for consent if you're going to take the, the the bodies the organs from a dead body and and the the sourcing in the article is very far-ranging covering world health organization myriad respectable journalists uh, and um, other uh, institutions, so it's not just some uh, kind of knee-jerk um, piece.
0: So, so, uh, why don't you post a link to it in the chat? Um, you know, I, I stay away from sort of battlefield uh, allegations like this because I think just during war, it's so easy to spread propaganda for either side, and I just don't try to, to adjudicate that kind of stuff. But, the, you know, if you want to post a link to it, people can check it out. And I, I've heard some more things said in Syria. You know, so it's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, thank Thanks, you sir. Call. Uh, Okay. HLE, hi. Hi. Yeah, to him? Yes.
10: Yeah. So I'm going to skip my second question because, yeah, time and stuff. But uh, the first car brought up some stuff about he felt maybe a bit mistreated because he brought up the same subject every week or something. I just wanna say I didn't feel he was like um I I didn't think you expressed him being anno- annoying or anything although like I can see why he thought that but I just wanna say there are there have been I've been following the show since since the war started like a year every episode and sometimes there are people who come in and and I'm not saying this is Brent, as he was called, I'm not talking about him, but there have been other people who come in and are just plain rude. There was a guy a few months ago, I think it was an English guy talking about Ukraine, how name one source for this, and, and he was like smugly smiling, like, you can't do that, can you? <laughs> and I think people who come in and don't show any respect, they don't really deserve any respect back. And you usually do, and I mean, it's up to you, it's it's not, not my business, but I just think you don't have to thank people who are just nasty and rude, you know, and are just in it to like humiliate someone else because they don't agree with them. Um, I think you don't need to be nasty to them either, but you don't have to thank them or, you know, make sure they get to say everything they have to say. So that's just my
0: okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, thanks for the feedback. I, you know, I try to let people voice whatever they want to voice. And yeah, if someone's being disrespectful, uh, then I'll, or you know, they or insulting to people, I'll, I'll cut them off. But yeah, I, I also think, uh, but I do think it's entertaining when someone calls in to debate, and I think the audience likes that. So that's why I like it when people do that. But um, I hear you, and I appreciate the feedback. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Sterling.
11: Aaron, yes, I think you don't get rattled by many people, and that's one of your gifts. Um, Did you see the article by Ben Norton about the think tank, the latest article he's done? I didn't, no. Okay. Well, I think it's really important. It's an elite EU-funded European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a government-funded think tank. Um, and they talk about the impo- and how the lost is just completely clueless because the global south is a serious player. And it's really, really interesting. The article, it's very, very long um, and just detailing this finding. But the, basically, the end of it comes down to the Ukraine will have to concede territory because this can't, this will not work. This isn't going to work. They're seeing the strengthening of the China Russia relation, um, India, all of these things as far as BRICS rising and saying that this is just not going to work and the the West is blowing it. Um, I don't. It, you have to read the article. I wish I could share a link. I just put um, what is his thing. I, I put it in. I put it in the um, comments. Um, so please check it out because these are serious people. These are serious players in this. These are the leaders that kind of run everything. And right now I think when we see, hear things like they're kind of talking about peace, you'll hear this from some leaders. And then they're like, no way, we're sending more money and we're going to kill people. So it's kind of confusing. But uh, great article um, by Ben, and um, I hope everybody checks it out because I think it's from, coming from this source of people. Um, I think it's something to pay attention to.
0: Okay, and you'll post a link to it in the chat?
11: It's in the chat. Okay,
7: cool. Thanks. Thank, Bye. You. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Brady. Hello, Aaron. I just posted a possible solution to disrupt this narrative of like collective suicide we're all on right now towards war. Uh-huh. Doing uh-huh. this uh, jailbreaking chat GPT to help write a peace proposal from the American people to the people of Ukraine and Russia and the rest of the world too. And I posted a link to an example of just one of, uh, one prompt I did uh, during the course of this show. I just opened it up, dropped it in there, dropped the link again and it's pretty interesting. Like one of the ideas that came up with was having Ukrainian people and Russian people like, do like a wife swap or house swap thing and like live with each other's families for a while and like get to know each other. (laughs) And like, I'm like, I would pay money for that. Absolutely. And people are motivated by money. Like I know we've all seen the wife swap show, like something as goofy as that I think could actually at, at least propose it, see if there's anyone willing to do it or try it in the middle of wartime. Is that even a possibility? you know, it would make the leadership, it would make both Putin and Zelensky look bad if we weren't able to see this cool show of Russian and Ukrainian people getting to hang out and get to know each other a little bit and like maybe talk a little bit of politics in like a a healthy way in front of a camera, I think would be so cool. And that's my ultimate philosophy is that dialogue and debate. Is the ultimate mitigator of war because it exemplifies how to use good words and good speech as opposed to violence and how that actually makes us into better friends than we would be if we just started hitting each other. Okay. Thanks, Brady. Uh, I'll take this call
0: and then I have room. F- I have time for a few more. So anybody else wants to jump in the queue? Go ahead. And this caller, I'm not going to say your name, but go ahead and speak if you're there. okay well Wendy let's go to you
5: hi Aaron hi I was just wondering if we're a hundred percent certain that Russia was providing and I'll put a link in the in the chat but according to a Swiss NATO person I don't know if he was an officer or what but he used to work for NATO and I think it's April of 22. He put out a letter, and unless I misread it, they could not find evidence aside from some. If I understood it correctly, the Polish said that um, Russia was supplying weapons, but the NATO personnel could not actually find evidence. What they found was that um, Ukrainian, Russian Ukrainians who had defected were providing weapons to Donbass and
6: right okay
0: so you're talking about jack Jacques bow who i've interviewed before and yeah he does say there was a lot of defections uh and yeah i think you're right he did say that there wasn't much in the way of russian military support to the rebels but i think i mean i i can't remember if he was talking about just the initial period in 2014 or or afterwards but i think in the years since it's pretty obvious there's been some support uh from russia to the rebels and russia did send in troops I I think that's established and um you know
5: well he said the first troops arrived in 2022 in that article
0: okay so. well i i i would not agree with that but i'd have to go and then find my forces to to to, to uh explain why but again, okay i think russian forces were sent into crimea and into the donbass before not not a lot and i do i do think that the insurgency in the donbass was local it was driven by locals organized by locals but uh, and there were a lot of defections um, you're right yeah. but well um,
5: and i'm not yeah. sure if he if he said there were troops in crimea i was thinking specifically of the donbass and the Luhansk cuz since they did that vote and crimea voted i yeah. air quotes cuz i don't know that how true that is i tend to believe it but yeah. um so I just assumed that they sent troops in there. I don't think he was addressing that when he was talking about when the troops came.
0: And, and again, I, I don't think it was a huge number of troops sent into the Donbass, but I do think there were some Russian forces sent there. Um, okay. But uh, anyway, you know, but hey, um, Jacques Beau knows a lot, and he was monitoring the conflict at, for NATO at the time. So you know, I take what he says seriously. Uh, okay. Thank, thanks for the call. Thanks a lot. Okay. Hey, I wonder if
12: you've seen the video that was captured of documents being burned in Ukraine in the early days of the war. Big packets of paperwork being tossed in a heap of fire. And the, the journalist was claiming that this was a bomb that had gone off in Kiev, but it was actually uh, outside of a bio lab where some documents were being burned.
0: I have not seen that.
12: I have okay. not seen that. Yeah. I just saw the video of it last night, and I had heard rumors that it had been caught on video. I've been talking about Ukrainian biolabs for several months. And in certain call-in spaces, whenever I'd bring it up, I'd kind of be chased out of the room as a conspiracy theorist. And then you have Victoria Newland herself confirming that, yes, there were some biolabs. They were concerned enough about those labs that they wanted to get in there and make sure they were protected so that as the Russians came in, they couldn't get in there and mess with whatever was inside the lab. And so there was confirmation that, yes, there are biolabs in Ukraine. There's some question about whether or not they're being funded by American interests. And the the evidence coming out around Hunter Biden, his company, MetaBiota, the funding by Rosemont Seneca. Have you heard these things?
0: Yeah, I've heard talk of it, but I haven't looked into it. So it's not something I can really speak to. But, uh, but I've certainly heard uh, rumors about it, yeah.
12: I'll share a link in the chat of a Substack piece I did just last night, sharing all the video evidence for anyone who's interested. And I would just encourage everybody to just uh, do a little digging on this this subject. I think it's going to be important going forward.
0: Okay. Thanks Jenny. All right, Brian.
13: Hey Aaron, I've uh, appreciated your reporting since the days at the real news network. And uh, in terms of supporting uh, independent journalism, and progressive reporting, I was curious, if you had a million dollars to put into the program, would you build out a media studio or hire uh, investigators or targeted ads, or or what could you do to uh, increase your reach? What could
0: I do to increase my reach? Um, I don't know, I don't know, (laughs) I don't know. Um, I'd like to increase my reach. I just, you know, I can only do what I can do (laughs) with what I have and uh, but I'm trying you know um, I'm always do thinking, you no. do you miss the studio of course I do yes I do I do you know before the real news I worked at Democracy Now for 10 years and um, you know as much as I really uh, wanted to move on and develop my own voice um, which I'm thankful I did I, I learned a lot there and I and I love doing a daily news show it's and working with people it's a it's, you know it's it, it's what I really enjoy doing, and it's a great, I think, service to the world. So yeah, no, I, I would like to be in that kind of situation again. But it just it takes money. It takes, you know, like Democracy Now raised millions and millions and millions of dollars, and uh, that's what it takes to do that kind of operation. And
13: um, there's yeah, well, I Democracy share. Now is going to need uh, a new host in uh, five or ten years. Keep that in mind. I uh, was sorry to see um, Juan go. Uh, he, well, he was Juan- so good.
0: Juan's still there he just he just moved to Chicago. Um, I think it's safe to say that I will never be the host of democracy now and, uh, <laughs> and I made peace with that that's okay uh they They've gone in a different direction editorial since editorially since I left and um you know uh it's not It's not the show that I thought it was and
13: yeah, Juan gave uh, some good uh going away. Uh, talks um, when he left New York. Do you have any yeah. good uh, Juan stories?
0: Well, I just really respect Juan and he's, he's done, he's had such a great career and um, very impactful and uh, he's a legendary figure. And um, I, I really appreciate everything he's done and, and still does today.
13: Yeah. Same. Good deal. Thanks brother. Have a good weekend.
0: Thank you. You too. Uh, okay. Last caller, Amanda.
14: Hello, Aaron. Hi. So I have a question, and I, I'm i not sure if you have an answer, but so it seems that the Nord Stream 2 is that the United States is responsible for that. I mean, who does the United States get in trouble with? Like, who, who is responsible for you know, saying, Hey, you guys, you guys did something totally illegal. And like what kinds of ramifications are potentially exist. I mean, is there anyone to enforce
0: the, yeah, it's our, it's us, it's us because Europe is completely bullied. They're total supplicants. Um, Germany, I'm sure, has known for a long time that it was the U.S. to blew it up. It wasn't some mystery, but, but look at look how they responded. They they have gone along with the U.S. You know, uh, Olaf Scholz stood next to Biden before Russia's invasion and heard Biden say, "If Russia invades, we'll stop it." And Biden was asked, "Well, how how would you do that if you, it's not the Nord Stream is not under your control?" He says, "You know, don't worry, we'll like we'll find a way." And Scholz just stood there, you know, um, and so that's Europe. And so the only people to hold the, the Biden administration accountable are the Biden administration's own people, and um, the problem with that, though, is the media won't even cover <laughs> the, the North Stream <laughs> sabotage. So it's hard. It, it's hard yeah.
3: to get
14: like, like, I mean, Russia or China's not gonna like. I mean, there. It just seems like at some point the the bully is gonna get outnumbered by people they've pissed off.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, but. Uh, as long as they have Europe sufficiently intimidated, okay. I, think, I think the U.S. will. Yeah, but it's true. But, but certainly the U.S. is not as, I think, powerful as it, as it used to be. And I do think the Ukraine proxy war has eroded that power in some ways. In some ways. Yeah. But, also, but also strengthen U.S. dominance over Europe. I think that's. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
14: Well, thanks. Thank,
0: thank you. you. Thanks for the call. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you spending some time with me, and uh, I'll be back next time. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.